G'day. I'm Glenn Davis, and welcome to The Policy Shop, a place where we think about policy choices. Time has come in America when the same kind of concentrated effort that split the atom and took man to the moon should be turned toward conquering this dread disease. Cancer is going to strike one in two men and one in three women. So we are not exactly winning the war on this disease. Cancer is a lens, probably I would argue that one of the most important lenses that allows us to investigate the structure of the acquisition of knowledge in the 20th and 21st century. Tonight I'm announcing a new national effort to get it done. And because he's gone to the mat for all of us on so many issues over the past 40 years, I'm putting Joe in charge of mission control. For the loved ones we've all lost, for the families that we can still save, let's make America the country that cures cancer once and for all. There are few people whose lives have not been touched by cancer. After heart disease, cancer is the second leading cause of death in the world. 8.8 million people lost their lives to cancer in 2015. A generation ago, one in three people in the developed world were diagnosed with cancer. In some countries, that now approaches one in two. Low- and middle-income countries are also severely affected, with the majority of cancer cases now presenting themselves in these nations. Here in Australia, nearly 50,000 people will die from cancer this year, which is an average of 131 deaths a day. Why, despite the great strides in medical knowledge, does the world seem to continue to struggle to find a cure for cancer? What strides have we made? What policies do we need from here? to fight a disease that one writer called the most relentless and insidious enemy. We have today two world-leading cancer experts to help us answer these questions. Associate Professor Shireen Lloyd is head of the Translational Breast Cancer Genomics Laboratory at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre here in Melbourne. And we're also joined by Nobel laureate Dr Harold Varmus, currently the Lewis Thomas University Professor at Will Cornell Medical College, who's formerly served as the Director of the National Institute of Health and as the Director of the National Cancer Institute in the United States. Professor Varmus delivered the 2017 Graham Clark Oration on Monday evening here at the University of Melbourne. Let's start by building a picture of the disease for our listeners. Shireen, what is cancer? So cancer is an abnormal growth of cells, I guess, is the most basic definition. That's how I think about it. And why does it exist? Well, I think, you know, cells have to divide and they're dividing all the time, every day, in multiple parts of your body. And the division process is highly complicated. So eventually things sometimes go wrong. And one hypothesizes that the longer the cells need to divide, the more times they need to divide, the higher chance that something's going to go wrong and the cell can't repair itself. And so that mistake amplifies and takes on a life of its own. Harold, cell replication clearly at the centre of the question about cancer. What is the research telling us? Well, let me just uh, amplify a little bit on the definition because I think it's important to remember that it's not just cells growing too much, but it's cells that... uh, are growing in a way that uh, allows them eventually to invade uh, into adjacent tissue and to spread to distant sites where they ultimately kill the host. I'd like to think of cancer as uh, a 
cell evolution process that mimics what happens in evolution more broadly, and that, in fact, we, we will never rid ourselves of the threat of cancer because uh, cells are driven by a genetic blueprint. That blueprint is subject to change as a result of what we call mutations, and uh, mutations um, are in part a result of exposure to bad things, chemicals, radiation um, that damage DNA, and also a result, as was just pointed out, of the natural tendency to make mistakes when you try to copy three billion pairs of, uh, of chemicals that make up our DNA. So it's inherent in the human condition, and um, we have to think about it that way. And the, the challenge that we come to then is which genes, uh, what do those genes do? Can we learn from the intense efforts to understand the genetic basis of cancer about new ways to prevent it and treat it. So we know we're starting. Now, Shereen, can you tell us about the medical effort to address this? If this is inherent in who we are as people, what can medicine do and what are the limits, the theoretical or practical limits? I mean, there's multiple ways we can address it. Causes, as Dr. Varmus has already alluded to, and they can be multiple things from inherited causes through genetic inherited mutations, such as the BRCA mutation, particularly in breast cancer that we've seen with Angelina Jolie. They can be lifestyle choices, so obesity, for example, and they can be simply due to um, diet or damage, such as smoking, UV light, etc. They're all well-known causes of cancer. So how can we prevent cancer is obviously one way that we can approach the cancer issue and whether that approach needs to be um, more paternal through government policy or increasing prices of cigarettes, et cetera, I guess is one way that we can take to approach cancer. And then there's obviously diagnosis and treatment as well. Well, I'd just like to make a couple of elaborations on this. There, there are things that we can do to prevent certain kinds of cancers. It's important to recognize at the outset that cancer is not one disease. Okay. It affects virtually every type of tissue or cell in the body. And each cancer arising in every individual is different um, when you look at the genetic profile of that cancer. There are some cancers that are caused by infection with viruses in particular. And one thing that's very important to put in place from a public health perspective is the use of the vaccines we have developed against human papillomaviruses and against uh, human hepatitis B viruses that are true preventions because they prevent the infections that are associated with cancer. And uh, I would emphasize that much of the work that you hear about in the, in the press is about understanding the cancers that do arise and uh, offer opportunities for uh, many different kinds of treatment. And that treatment has to be based on a much more refined uh, type of uh, diagnostic procedure than we've had traditionally. And traditionally, we've said this person has lung cancer. Now we say this person has lung cancer with the following mutations. And if you have certain mutations, you may be much more likely to respond to so-called targeted drug therapies, which are less toxic than traditional therapies, or to new ways to manipulate the immune system and uh, control cancers through uh, a, an effort to modulate the way the immune system responds to a cancer. Yeah, I mean, I think and certainly now cancer is more complicated than what it was 20 years ago. There's more sensitive technologies allow us better diagnostic precision and also to be able to understand the makeup of everyone's individual cancer. And we're discovering, you know, it's very, very complex. And um, But technology is allowing us to understand more and therefore be able to develop better diagnostic techniques, management and treatment. So we're definitely in, in an age going forward where I I think there will be an acceleration 
in how we manage cancer, or a paradigm change in how we manage and treat and diagnose cancer. Well, indeed, that's already happening. That's true, yes. Quite a large scale. And uh, at this point, one of the things that uh, I'm struggling with and many people around the world are struggling with is how we get better use of the kinds of genetic tests that that can inform uh, the use of new kinds of therapy, therapies that are very, very expensive, but nevertheless can be incredibly useful and are more cost-effective if we use them only on those for whom uh, the therapies are likely to have a a benefit. Yeah. And it's about education as well, isn't it? Because we have this expansion of technology um, and then education of how we're going to use it. Education, but also political action that uh, that results in reimbursement for some of these tests that will not be used until they are reimbursed. So I'd like to pursue the political angle. Mm. As this is the policy shop, I'd like to go back 46 years when the US president of the time, Richard Nixon, famously declared a war on cancer. Mm. Harold, you were the director of the primary agency in the United States responsible for biomedical and public health research, the National Institute of Health. And then you worked with President Obama on his war on cancer. Um, 46 years is a long time to wait for an answer. What did we learn on that journey and why do politicians buy in? Okay, well, a couple of things. One is that I don't consider that so long. I mean, I know it's long from the perspective of somebody who's been diagnosed with a cancer to be told that it could take many years before we get to the point where we can treat that cancer effectively. And secondly, I think it's important to remember that uh, cancer is not one disease. It's many. I've said that before. I will repeat it. Uh, And this is an incredibly difficult biological problem of uh, trying to eliminate or reduce the growth of cells that uh, have acquired new characteristics that are very difficult to counter. The effect of these initiatives is important because it results in greater expenditure on, on cancer research. And there's no doubt that cancer research and research across the board on virtually all diseases and on our understanding of the human condition can proceed more quickly with more money. From a policy perspective, I am a fierce opponent of creating these initiatives with a specific goal in mind because those goals are very difficult to achieve. But to say, as Joe Biden has said, for example, in his recent uh, effort uh, called the Cancer Moonshot, uh, we want to do 10 years of work in five years, and we can do that if we have more resources because there are a lot of people out there who are well-trained and willing to work hard on these problems, but we are limited by financial resources, as well as by talent and good ideas. But those come more quickly in an environment that's well-supported. So has the Biden moonshot made a difference? I think it's difficult to say yet, um, and it may be difficult to say later. Um, I think we look back on Nixon's so-called war on cancer, a, a nomenclature that I think is not necessarily the right one, nor do I think moonshot is necessarily the right uh, the right language either. But there's no doubt that you can see historically that uh, the investment that was made in the National Cancer Institute after Nixon's declaration, he didn't say war on cancer. He said, I'm going to sign the National Cancer Act and change the authorities and the finances of this institute. And the result was that a lot of people, including me, moved into these into that field and uh, wor- worked with the uh, greater resources and made a lot of discoveries that were important not just for cancer research but it turned out long before we knew about AIDS much of the work that was being done was actually directed to understanding the class of viruses the retroviruses in which to, be to which to which yeah. HIV belongs and we would yeah. didn't know at the time so i think these investments in fundamental research that are typified by nixon's uh, attack on on cancer are are useful from the biden perspective i i think uh, he has benefited 
cancer research by bringing smart people in the room to uh, solidify the directions we're taking by saying, uh, here are what a bunch of smart people think are the most important things to do in cancer research. Most of them are already being pursued, but I think pursued now with a perhaps higher level of aggressiveness now that uh, people have congressed to, uh, to, to, to articulate what's important to do. Shireen, you head the uh, Translational Breast Cancer Genomics Laboratory at the stunning Peter McCallum Cancer Center just, just near the University of Melbourne. Can you tell us a bit about how a research scientist like you looks at the political side of this, how you lobby, how important policy settings are for you, or is this just about the science? So for me, it's really about the science at the moment and getting enough money and resources and good people in the lab to help pursue the ideas that I have. Um, of course, everyone needs funding because science now involves technology, it involves sequencing, it involves, you know, high-throughput immunology techniques, it involves mouse work, and all that is very expensive in the current environment, and you need people to do it. So, you know, for me, it's about the science, but obviously, in the background, you need to get the funding. Breast cancer is quite fortunate because we have a lot of funding opportunities available, both nationally and internationally. There's a very um, supportive and vocal advocates group and consumer raising groups. And because breast cancer affects almost, you know, someone knows someone who's had a person affected or die from the disease, it's a very emotive topic for many people. So unfortunately in that way that there's a lot of funding support for the disease. But saying that, it's about moving forward and trying to be competitive in an international space. And I work specifically on immunology in breast cancer and trying to move forward um, therapeutics in that area. But that, of course, involves the rest of the world. So it's important for us in Australia, even though we are very far away, to be out there in the rest of the world and engaging with scientists in the US and in Europe, and also being able to bring drugs that we think are going to be beneficial back to the Australian women. And I think, you know, the local landscape and the national government policy is actually quite helpful from that point of view because it allows small biotech to come in fairly easily and allows um, our trial infrastructure allows companies um, to easily set up their trials. There's a lot of bureaucracy, administration and legal work that goes into conducting a clinical trial, which allows us to evaluate new therapeutics. And so we're lucky in Australia that we have the infrastructure that allows us to do that. Relatively straightforward compared to places like the US and Europe. That's I think there, there is a point to be made, though, about uh, the nature of uh, initiatives to support research that appears to benefit one type of one disease, that much of what constitutes the greatest progress in medical science comes from a broader perspective that's not focused solely on one type of cancer or even one kind of disease. And uh, certainly... You know, it's obviously important that we learn more about breast cancer specifically and that we learn to treat it more effectively and prevent it more effectively. But um, I think that much of what has happened in cancer research generally has come from a commitment to, to funding medical research in general and learning the basic building blocks of, of how life works, learning about the general principles of uh, of how cancer arises without necessarily focusing on breast cancer. I'm fond of pointing out that many of the advances we've made in breast cancer result from funding, from, from discoveries made with other types of cancer. And uh, the, the, the informed donors who uh, put the, together initiatives of this kind um, will be funding research that is not necessarily recognizable by a layperson as yep. being breast cancer Absolutely. research. Yep. And I think informing people about the importance of 
how information is shared, how we learn from breast cancer about, uh, for example, in my own work, I was working on a breast cancer model in a mouse, and we made a discovery which turns out to be incredibly important in colon cancer and various other cancers and much less important about breast cancer. And those examples need to be kept in mind. Absolutely. I agree with that. And also, I think the dialogue is important cross-discipline as well and cross-science, different scientists, different laboratories. And I think that dialogue is very important, which is the advantage of being in this precinct as well. And Harold, you've had some very critical things to say about the scientific process as it operates. Uh, You, in 2014, co-authored a very influential article entitled Rescuing U.S. Biomedical Research from Its Systemic Flaws, in which you described a hyper-competitive atmosphere in which scientific productivity is reduced, promising careers are threatened, and results are not achieved. Yeah, I would only say that this was not a criticism of the scientific process. It's a criticism of the, the environment in which yes, science is done science. today. Yeah. Not even necessarily the the, the uh, organization, but the the customs, the the um, the operative principles in which uh, scientists work, especially as we have more and more scientists. Uh, who are chasing less and less money. Uh, and science, as you've heard from Charlene, has gotten, has gotten much more expensive. So we have a situation in which uh, there, um, I think we don't want to get into details here, but we have young people who are postponing their entry into an active independent scientific life because uh, it's just difficult to get grants, it's difficult to get papers published, it's difficult to find jobs. Uh, and we need to find some relief for a Malthusian problem created by population dynamics and funding practices that uh, that are in some ways inhibiting scientific progress. How was the Academy response to your article? Well, I think everyone agreed that we've identified the major problems. Uh, they're not easily solved. Uh, and uh, you know, I think there are a number of things that we can do. We can think about new kinds of grants that support people at younger ages and for different kinds of services. We can train people not just to become academic scientists but tell them as they enter a training program that there are a lot of options, a lot of ways to use a scientific career, be perfectly honest with them that, that their chances of being – as you are, for example, uh, an independent investigator at a prestigious academic institution, that's not going to happen to uh, more than a minority of people who enter the field. And once people begin to understand that and we create some exit ramps from training programs that lead to um, jobs where scientific knowledge is important in industry and journalism and teaching and the legal world, then we have a, a, a more satisfactory situation. I'd I don't want to see people not enter training programs in science because I think the more scientific thinking we have in a society, the more likely we are to have societies that are productive and acting in a rational way. Shireen, in your work here and previously in Europe, do you recognize this hyper-competition that pervades so many areas of science and the consequences for cooperation and risk-taking uh, and career planning, in a sense. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's endemic for every <laughs> young scientist. And certainly, um, you know, I saw my male colleagues when I went had my children, you know, they were five years ahead of me all of a sudden when I came back into science. So I think, you know, it's a product of the system, though. As Dr. Varmas has said, you have to apply for competitive grants. So you have to publish in high-impact papers, and you're always trying to publish in the highest level. And, you know, that leads to issues on its own with people maybe taking shortcuts, etc. But... You know, this is the way the system is at the moment. I'm not sure how that can be easily addressed apart from creating diversity and outcomes from jobs from PhD. I think that's important. And certainly there's lots of opportunities mm. now in industry 
and you know other types of jobs. Yeah, I think it's a very difficult, difficult problem. I'd like now to turn to the politics of funding. And Harold, I'd be remiss not to ask you about the current US debate over Obamacare or the Affordable Health Act and the withdrawal of subsidies that's going on around some of the treatments. You've alluded to this earlier on. How do we approach this as a society? What's a fair way of deciding who gets funded and how much public resource goes into supporting individual patients? But I think we're – well, I use the word funding in a a context that I don't fully understand. We're talking about – in my view is that uh, healthcare is a right, not just just something that you have to seek out for yourself. That one of the things society should provide to its citizens is some – the basic elements of of modern healthcare – and once you agree with that notion of equity, then certain things follow yeah. that that, that uh, healthcare should be. But they don't always seem to follow, which is they no. don't. No, and and uh, but that's very different from funding yeah. investigators. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. It's, yes. it's a matter yeah. of uh, building a healthcare hmm. um, insurance system that, that yeah. is fair. Uh, in the U.S., we're trapped by the elaborate insurance industry that we have, and I think other other societies, certainly in Europe have built a, an infrastructure that de- is primarily dependent on national health, uh, whereas the U.S., we haven't had that except for the poor, the very poor, in the form of Medicaid, and for, the, for those over 62 or 63, depending on, on states, in the form of, of Medicare. And I think many of us believe that uh, we can begin to extend the, the benefits of a Medicare-like program to people at younger and younger ages. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, you can't do uh, a sudden transformation of a, of a program that, that spends between $1 and $2 trillion a year overnight. It's got to be a gradual process. But I think if we adhere to the principles that, uh, that health care is a right and that uh, it benefits society to health, have a healthy society uh, and that uh, we look to the success of Medicare as a program that that does provide care for the elderly, uh, we can we can rebuild our system. Shireen, uh, former Governor General Dame Quentin Bryce has backed efforts to have a life-extending breast cancer drug that costs about $5,000 a month listed on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme. In a sense, how much do scientists buy into this argument about how we should fund, structure, support individual patients? And how much do you watch the translation of your research and your group's research into pharmaceutical responses. So access to um, potentially life prolonging or quality of life medication is a huge issue in Australia. So usually when a drug has gone through phase three testing and is shown to improve survival, then the, the pharma company will seek approval in Australia to have the drug reimbursed and available for everyone. So that's the one strengths of the Australian healthcare system. The problem with that, of course, it has to go through numerous processes to get the government to to approve, to fund the medication. I mean, obviously I'm very biased because I see these patients in my clinic. So of course I want them to access medication that I know and has have seen work. Mm-hmm. But obviously we live in a public healthcare system. So someone else makes these decisions about what is reasonable um, for taxpayers to fund. I do think that sometimes pharma companies do get a bit greedy and um, I think that should also be taken into consideration in, in the negotiations, which are probably why they're so prolonged. But I, you know, I think that given that m- almost every eligible patient in Australia will receive that medication, that perhaps the price negotiations shouldn't be as prolonged as they normally are. Harold, how important is Big Pharma in these debates? Well, Big Pharma has uh, a case to make for its 
it for the prices it uh, it charges. And uh, you know, I don't think scientists are necessarily any better equipped than any other citizen in having opinions about these. I want advances in science to be reflected in the kinds of access to care people have. But I think we need to entertain some honest debate about pricing. The prices in the U.S. are higher than prices in other countries. Uh, I don't think the U.S. in general does a very good job in negotiating price reductions. There are proposals on the table to consider paying for, for drugs only if they work, and that is a reasonable thing to think about. I think one thing to keep in mind is that some of the wastage, some of the excess payments that are made to pharmaceutical companies are made because physicians themselves are not doing the kinds of testing that are available now and will be even more available in the future to determine who's likely to respond. And I think uh, that's a really important issue, which has been documented as an effective way to approach the, the, the use of drugs. Trial and error doesn't make sense if you actually have a rational basis for using a drug. Can we just touch on another area of development, which is gene sequencing and even gene therapy, and the sense that this might change uh, the equation toward more personalized medicine, which goes to the question Harold just raised around the efficacy of drugs. Shireen, how important is genome sequencing and its applications in the fight against cancer? It's extremely important. I mean, we've seen a huge revolution um, with our ability to sequence and the sequencing of human genome now to precision oncology, um, certainly in HER2, certainly in breast cancer, the HER2 type of breast cancer, which expresses the HER2 gene and the development of drugs against that gene has been you know, completely life-changing, life-prolonging for many, many women. And it's become HER2-positive breast cancer is now a curable disease. So this is a critical part of our evolution in treatment of cancer and how we implement that the quicker the better. And the government really needs to be involved with that. Lately, BRCA1 germline testing has been approved for reimbursement in Australia. So I think that's a huge step forward because now we have effective therapies against patients who carry those germline mutations. So I think um, this is all very critical in our progress against treatment um, of cancer patients. Just say two quick things about that. Of course, I agree with the fundamentals of what was just said. But I do think that uh, government and insurers are not spending enough money on reimbursement for genetic testing that we have a tremendous amount to learn from doing these tests and aggregating the information so that we can go enter a process of continuous learning. One thing that is happening in the U.S. is that drugs are being approved at an earlier, earlier stage, and we can learn a lot from following the consequences of using these drugs, which have been approved at an early stage, by following their response in the context of genetic testing. So I've made an argument, which is soon to appear in, in a, a popular science magazine, to have the government reimburse for genetic testing that is in excess of what you would absolutely need in order to gather more information that would inform decisions in the future. You had raised a question about gene therapy. Gene therapy, of course, is quite separate from what we're talking about here, but it's important to know that gene therapy, which has been a contentious issue for now quite some time, is now um, an approved therapy in the U.S. for certain kinds of cancer by using the introduction of genes into immune cells to direct those cells to attack cancer cells. Um, this is an effective therapy in a small number of patients, and I think will be more widely used uh, in the future, but it represents one of the first occasions in which the Food and Drug Administration has actually approved the, uh, the use of gene therapy for modulation of uh, patient cells. Shireen, when you think about the future of medicine and the future of personalized medicine in addressing cancer, 
How does that roll out in your view? So I think understanding the individual patient's cancer is going to um, be critical in the future and that will involve, as we've already alluded to, gene sequencing of the tumour as well as sequencing of the patient's genetic makeup and understanding the immune um, environment of the tumour as well as that of the host. So I think altogether there will be four critical components in helping us understand how we um, treat the cancer and the patient and probably it's all going to be together in some fancy computerized algorithm that will bring together blood, tumor, um, sequencing data, immune data, pathology, and churn out some algorithm, <laughs> best drug, how long yeah. for, etc. Indeed, maybe personalized drugs that are quite uh, closely matched to that information? Well, it could be with the advent of CAR T-cell therapy, which is what Dr. Varmus was alluding to with um, gene modification of T-cells. I mean, certainly the field is trying to head in that direction. So you can certainly imagine therapies with specific genes that are altered in the cancer being targeted in specific therapies. So that certainly is in the future. And then enhancing the immune system by genetically engineering the T-cells. So I think there'll be lots of movement on there. But I think there's also similar, you know, loss of weight, you know, maybe, you know, stop smoking, there'll be dietary changes, um, exercise, lifestyle, you know, we forget that obesity is really critical in why we have increased rates of cancer these days. Um, and, you know, I think there'll be you know, those issues as well that we'll have to tackle in the patient. So it isn't just about medical intervention, it's also about what we do to ourselves. Almost certainly. <laughs> Harold, as you think about US policy settings, yes. where would you like to see more attention? What changes would you like to see to make a difference to the work of you and so many others in yeah, I mean, I think we, we do in general have a strong working environment in the US, certainly in the, in the institutions I'm associated with. We have resources for those who are receiving grants. We have good institutions to work in. So there are two things that are on my mind. One is ensuring that we, the senior investigators, are going to be replaced by young investigators who have a chance to, to uh, show their mettle and their, and their ingenuity. Uh, the other is to deal with the current administration, which is, uh, seems either oblivious or antagonistic to science and is thinking about uh, reductions in the budget of the National Institutes of Health and considering ways to cut back on the way in which government agencies support the academic institutions in which that work occurs. And if we don't deal with those two problems, uh, our ability to achieve the kinds of results that uh, we all yearn for is going to be dramatically diminished. Thanks to my guests for an intriguing discussion. Associate Professor Shireen Loy, Head of the Translational Breast Cancer Genomics Laboratory at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. Thank you for having me. And thank you to the Lewis Thomas University Professor at Weill Cornell Medical College, Nobel Laureate Dr. Harold Vams. My pleasure. And thank you for listening to The Policy Show. Policy Shop is produced by Owen Hahasi with audio engineering by Gavin Nabar. Research in this episode was by Ruby Schwartz. The Policy Shop is licensed under Creative Commons. Copyright, University of Melbourne, 2017.